Hey team, welcome to the Professionally Offensive Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Cabrera. This is the spot where we provide raw, unfiltered insights from some amazing guests. Stand by, you're about to be offended in all the right ways. All right, team, welcome to the Professionally Offensive Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Cabrera, and today I have a really awesome guest on, someone that is very different uh, than what we've had on before. Someone who's been an operator and has done things before, but more now in the think leadership space. So, Pascal Finette, so great to have you on. Uh, I'm stoked to be here. I'm allowed to say this. I used to live in California, so I earned the right to to say stoked, I think. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely, man. I think that... Um, I think where you're at now in Colorado is probably my other, uh, you know, place that I would spend most of the year, but absolutely great to have you on, man. So let me, before we jump into it, because right now, before we kind of huddle, just so the audience knows, Pascal and I both agree that we're just going to riff on this. I think our best conversations come from it. So y'all are welcome and hold on for the ride. But just to give you a little background on Pascal, he has an enormous amount of experience and background and all the things that I think we all find interesting, but wonder how the heck does someone even get involved in those things? So, Pascal, if you don't mind, man, I'm going to burn your ears up for a little bit and kind of give you a little background. So right now, he's the current co-founder and chief heretic, which is an awesome title, at Be Radical, which I'm going to describe it the best way I can. And of course, you correct me, but Be Radical is really uh, an organization that allows companies to be the best versions of themselves, but really looking at it from the perspective in which they probably are not comfortable looking from. And as Pascal, I've heard many a times say, really try to get you to take the BS glasses off, so to speak, and really think about what's going on in front of you, how to think about the future, but also how to do something today. So really dig that part of it. But even before that, I mean, Pascal's got an enormous amount of experience leading and running initiatives everywhere from Google, eBay, Mozilla, in the startup and the VC space. Uh, I think currently are you the advisory still chair of uh, Ernest and Young's uh, Wave Space there? Mm-hmm. Okay, right, so yeah. still doing that. I mean, that's a, a good amount. Uh, was faculty chair before this whole endeavor there at Singularity University, which I think now is called Singularity Group. And again, just if y'all haven't heard his podcast, The Heretic, these are really great bite-sized nuggets of just pure horsepower that just really makes you think for the rest of the day. And of course, you can catch them on things like TED Talk. So I can go on and on and on, but... And it goes beyond even what I've said there, man. But I would say that any one of those things we can probably spend a good amount of topics on. So how do you make time for all this stuff? Uh, first of all, Joseph, that was quite the bombastic introduction. So <laughs> thank you so much. I want to meet that guy you you just talked about. That sounds incredible. Um, I mean, honestly, and I think it's an interesting uh, probably starting point for, for the journey we're taking now. Uh, really, as you're reading my CV and as, you know, uh, one of your listeners may look me up on LinkedIn or something. You look at the CV and it really feels like everything made sense. And there was this like big master plan and like one thing led to the other. And it's incredible. And in hindsight, I can tell you this absolutely gorgeous, beautiful, amazing story, how all the things fit and all the things I'm currently doing fit. And in reality, in the moment, it never made any sense whatsoever. It was always like very uh, driven from a gut feel, a an interest of mine saying, uh, yes, just to a few too many things. Um, and then I find, you know, once you say yes a lot and you figure out what you actually enjoy doing, you find time for it. You know, I, I meet people who are doing way more, I feel, they're doing way more stuff than I do. And I, I ask the exact same question you're asking, which is, how do you make this work? This is crazy. 
And they tell me the same thing. They say, well, you know, like somehow it works. Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's like you don't get it. Uh, you become energized by those things. Therefore, not only so do you make time, but you're way more efficient when you're doing them too versus unfortunately a lot of our uh, citizens of humanity there kind of are not doing that thing. So they're bogged down by it, sitting on the couch sure. being like, I don't have time for any of this. Yeah, you do. Right. You're not doing the right stuff. Right. And then I think the, the other thing to uh, point out is I believe that when you start doing things you, you really genuinely enjoy, and I'm pretty sure every one of your listeners has a thing they genuinely enjoy. It might not be their particular work right now, but, you know, a hobby, the family, church, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, you then very naturally prioritize those things over the things which kind of just, you know, they feel like snacking, you know, like they make you feel like relatively good right in the moment, but really they don't add anything to uh, to the routine, right? Like sitting in, on a couch, like playing a computer game or mindlessly watching, you know, the nth rerun of Seinfeld or whatever it is, right? Yeah, no, that's right. Well, I mean, that, so it gets me thinking, Pascal, like how, in the line of work that you guys do with Be Radical and even beforehand, do you feel like companies get that way too, where they're doing a bunch of things, maybe either keeping up with the Joneses or maybe, I don't know, it just feels like what their other CEO buddy was doing over dinner, so maybe their company's got to do that. Do you feel like companies suffer from that kind of stuff too? A hundred percent. I, if I can get on my soapbox for one second here, of course, get on it. Yeah, you know, I find this really fascinating. If you're thinking about companies, um, particularly if you're thinking about big companies, it feels to me that there is this really interesting moment in a in a company's life, and I don't know to this day. I have not really figured out when and how and why it happens. But you get to a point where you start putting people on jobs, which are. I'm the guy who's responsible for the corporate Twitter account, but only between 2 and 6 p.m. Yes. And it's only one of 14 accounts we are running, right? And then that person comes home and says when, you know, uh, honey, how was how was your day? And you're like, today was great. Like I sat down and I wrote two tweets. You know, I researched them really hard. And, you know, we got two tweets and we had like 14 likes and... <laughs> there is a moment, I don't know why, but there's a moment where like companies like start to splinter into these weird little fragmented jobs, which, you know, quite frankly, you look at this and you're like, how did that happen? How did we go from there's one person running all of marketing, you know, talking to the press, writing the copy and doing whatever, right? To, and now we have Joe running around, like tweeting from like, you know, 2 to 6 p.m., but only from this one account, my friend. <laughs> It's so weird, you know? It's so yes, hunch. there's something happening in companies which, you know, to this day, I, I just have a hard time wrapping my head around. Is it your hunch at all that maybe it's like delegation of things that somebody didn't want to do and they just never thought to enhance that role at all? They're like, hey, I don't want to be doing Twitter, so I'm hiring you to do that. Maybe we'll find other things for you to do and then never get to the second part. I think that's part of it. I think there's also part in there which is um, I, I, maybe a lack of empowerment. Mm -hmm. Um and also a lack of, you know, some people just like standing up and saying like, listen, like I'm writing two tweets a day. You should not pay me, you know, whatever, like $5,000 a month. And <laughs> like, we should really figure this out, you know? Yeah. No, I dig it, man. Well, I mean, speaking of companies, it's something that I, you know, as I was thinking about this pod, I wanted to pick your brain on because I know you get a lot of exposure to founders and, and just folks who are running companies and folks who already are successfully running mm -hmm. them. I want to start kind of in the infancy stage of businesses. The one thing I want to pick your brain on a little bit is... Have you seen patterns at all what makes certain founders good? And what I mean by good, I'm defining that specifically like 
can bring their company to go the distance or at least to the point where they feel like they can do a solid handoff to the next person. Because I do find, in my experience, a lot of founders, I actually had someone say this the other day, I never heard it before. Another CEO friend of mine was like, it's founder's disease. And I was like, what the heck is that, man? He goes, well, you know how what happens, right? Like you get this brilliant idea, the vision comes to life, they're doing it a lot, but as soon as they get to step two, it begins mm -hmm. to implode on itself because that founder really didn't think about it as a business. They thought it much more of a creative project. So I'm curious from your mind, like what differentiates those people? Because in some ways there's beauty in the art that the founder has, but at the same time, it's really unfortunate that a lot of them can't bring it to that next step. Yeah. There's lots to unpack, I think. Um, yeah. For me, it starts with, uh, particularly when you see younger founders, um, you know, I spent all my career mostly in the tech sector. Um, so I see this a lot in the tech space. Understanding that building anything takes a long time. And, uh, you know, like the old adage of every overnight success is a seven years, you know, story in the making. Right. And I believe you had on your pod, you had a dear friend of mine, uh, Samantha Snapes, uh, building a incredible 3D printing company, but that company is also like a 10 year overnight success, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly so right. it, understanding that it takes time. So then the question becomes, okay, so if you are, first of all, understanding that, but then the question becomes, how do you actually make sure as a founder, you've got the stamina to actually see that to fruition? And I think this has much more to do with um, a very deep belief, less a, an excitement about the space. I see a lot of people getting excited about something, but there's a difference between being excited about something and being willing to put the work in and actually seeing it through and like seeing it all the way to the end. Mm -hmm. um, and for that to happen, I, I believe you need to have a very deeply rooted motivator, which pulls you forward. I used to be a runner. Um, in the running world is a good example is a lot of people have this like, goal to eventually run a marathon. Now, most people, if you aren't, you know, athletically inclined, running a marathon is a two, three year, at least project to really like build up your stamina. If you want to run it decently and not injure yourself and so on, right. Mm -hmm. To get through that like slog and put in the hours and, you know, drag yourself out of bed in the morning when it's raining um, and do your like whatever 10 K training run, you need to have a good reason why you want to run a marathon. If all the reason you have is, oh, it sounds cool and like my friends will tap me on the shoulder and say, man, like, you know, Pascal ran a marathon, mm -hmm. that it will not cut it. And the same is, I think is true for founders. And then, so really finding this like North Star, like why do you actually want to get out of bed? Um, and then the second part to that is the question, I think there's another interesting question to debate, which is how do you make sure that a founder or how, how can a founder make sure that they not only start a project, but then like see it through and get it to scale. And therein lies an interesting problem, I believe, where some people can't. I very fundamentally believe that there's a very rare breed of person who can do what Mark Zuckerberg does, which is you go from like, you know, building the Facebook uh, with your buddies getting drunk in, in your dorm right. to turning it into like, you know, a venture backed company, turning it into like the juggernaut it is today. Mm -hmm. Very, very few people can do this. And you know, still Steve there, Jobs, right? And yeah. be still there and still lead it. You know, Steve mm -hmm. Jobs might be another one of these people uh, or used to be one of those people. I think it's important to understand, like, where do you, as a person, where do you play? What are your limitations? Where does the joy also for you be end? Um, you know, I have a really hard time thinking about 
being a CEO of like a thousand people company. Could I probably do it like intellectually? Yes, maybe. Mm -hmm. But I would just hate myself every day because it's like not the kind of problem I want to solve. Yeah. You know, I am a person, I'm, I'm most happy if I'm surrounded by like two, three, four, five, maximum 10 people, and then I'm done. You know, the moment I need to manage, I'm like, nah, I'm out of here. <laughs> did so, that take time to know that? Like, did you feel yeah. like you've always intuitively known that? Or did you kind of no. have to try a couple? Okay, yeah. You have to try. I think you have to try. You have to learn it the hard way. But they, I, I think you can shortcut this by, um, particularly if you're a younger founder, really trying to spend more time understanding yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, find a, a bunch of good mentors and and you know friends who are like acting as a as a coach to you as a mirror, um, who can point things out to you. So yeah, I think you can shortcut quite a bit of that. You don't need to go the hard route of like really like running against the wall multiple times to understand what your limitations are or where you just don't like to be. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important to understand, and I think this goes back to the point you made earlier about like this idea that. You know, we see these people in the press and we're like, oh, I want to be the next Elon Musk or, you know, whatever, Mark Zuckerberg. And really, like, do you really, like, do you really want to run a company of 10,000 people and deal with all that crap? You know, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And good for you. More power to you. But most people don't. No, they're, and they're, you're right. They're, they're getting hooked on the, the symptom or the fumes that come from what that role really is. When I talk to founders, um, I'm actually meeting one with the end of this week and they're going to pick my brain on, I know just a couple things. And the one question I always ask, I'm curious if this resonates with you at all, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll kind of go through and they'll start talking about what they want to do and how they want to grow to the next thing or whatever. And so they're kind of waiting for me to kind of give this like, well, here's the calculus and how you do that. And my first question almost inevitably is always is, do you want to go there? And they mm -hmm. they all kind of look at me like, well, of course I do. I'm asking you. And I said, well, do you want to though? I mean, have you thought about, like, I'm just telling you the way I look at entrepreneurship, I see myself as an athlete in this game called business. Mm -hmm. I go, and for some of us playing backyard softball is fine. Like, and, and it's enjoyable and you can drink beer while you're doing it. Like it's fine. But if you want to be the athlete that actually is going to go the distance on that, just understand there's people watching you. There's audience folks that are going to pay tickets to come watch you play. And there's an enormous amount of responsibility growing and scaling a business. I'm just, if you're okay with those things, then let's talk about that path. But if not, a family shop, I mean, it used to be cool to have, you know, a mom and pop that was two to three people and call it a day, you know? I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and again, I, I love the question you're asking. A question I ask, uh, which is probably similar, and I ask this typically of companies when they go on these uh, innovation endeavors, you know, and they're yeah. like, oh, we need to innovate and disrupt and transform whatever. And then they build their like labs unit because they've read an article about Google X or something. <laughs> and a question I always ask them is, because very often they have the same issue, where this sounds cool, but it really is like once you get into it, you're like, ah, oh, man, this is actually not what I wanted or signed up for. And the question I always ask is, is what does what do you do when you're successful? Like, is this actually something you want like to think about and think about the pathway towards? A dear friend of mine, Maurice Conti, um, he used to run uh, uh, Telefonica Alpha, the moonshot unit for this uh, big telecoms company. He likens this to owning a pet tiger. So the idea is like, you know, there's Jonathan in his house and like owning a pet tiger is super cool. Like every one of your neighbors want to come. Like you throw parties all the time. Like the local paper writes about you. It's super cool. Like you want to have a pet tiger, right? But then you have a pet tiger and you just realize immediately, oh my God, wait a second. So first of all, they need a ton of like space and a lot of exercise. They eat like 40 kilos of meat every single serving. It's 
near impossible to get a vet out because they're like vets refuse to like treat them and every once in a while they eat your children right <laughs> so you're like wait a second that's not what i signed up for and you know like this whole thing like this we talk a lot about this in my world about this innovation projects but the startup is the same thing it's like owning a pet tiger do you actually really want to own a pet tiger or do you just love the idea of owning the pet tiger I dig it, man. That's such a great analogy. I'm going to probably steal that from you there. Totally yours. Because it, it's just a great classification of like what you're talking about. And my guess is that most folks that eventually do own that pet tiger didn't intend to, to begin with. They just kind of figured yeah. out the muscle memory to get good right. at owning one and built the infrastructure around it. But that was maybe not their full yeah. intention. Um, you know, it makes me think about especially the world that you play with when you're also talking to a lot of mature companies. Mm -hmm. If, you know, a lot of them will probably, do they ever say something back to you go, okay, well, appreciate it, Pascal, but like, if we don't innovate, we're going to die, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, do you kind of say what well, depends or what do you give them on that? Uh, no, that's totally right. <laughs> it's Darwinism, right? <laughs> you stand still, you're dead. No, yeah. absolutely. You have to do this. But I, I, again, I think the uh, question you need to ask yourself is, um, am I actually be okay with dealing with all of the consequences? Um, am I okay with dealing with the the pain and the suffering which comes from that yeah um and what is my ambition for this right i mean for you know bring it back to the startup world there's people who clearly have the ambition and the desire to build you know a huge big company a billion dollar company whatever you want to call these companies and then there's a whole bunch of people who say you know what at the very end of the day i think it's totally fine for me to have a nice stable business i want to like build this it's interesting I used to be at Mozilla, the Firefox web browser, yeah. eons ago, and I had these uh, two kids. This is Silicon Valley, and it gives you an idea of how messed up the world is. So I had these two kids coming in, presenting me a business idea, wanting to get feedback. Very similar, they came to me, like they came to you just, you know, like picking my brain. And the idea was dumb. So I told him, like, I'm like, this is not a good idea. You shouldn't do it. Here's the, all the reasons why. We did the whiteboard thing, et cetera. And in the course of our conversation, I asked them, what else are you doing, actually? And this is early days Facebook, right? So when Facebook just started opening their API, so you could build these little apps on Facebook. And they were, yeah. you might remember, they were super successful. And they told me, well, we have this little dating app on Facebook. And I was like, that's cool. And they're like, yeah, we'll monetize it, you know, make a little bit of money. And they were very hesitant. They basically said, like, you know, it's a lifestyle business. And they made it sound like this is something to be ashamed of, you know, as in, that's not Silicon Valley. In Silicon Valley, we build billion-dollar companies, not lifestyle businesses, right? Yep. And, you know, I, I got super curious. I was like, so how much money are you making with the lifestyle business? They're like, no, 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 it's a lifestyle business. You know, like, didn't want to answer the oh, question. They didn't even want to tell you, yeah. Yeah. And I kept asking them. I was like, how much money do you make with your lifestyle business? And they're like, well, you know, it's like we spend about four hours a week on the business. I'm like, that's great. Like, that's nothing, right? How much money do you make? And then eventually they caved in. Again, they were they were embarrassed about it. And they said to me, well, we're making about $50,000 a month. And I'm looking at them like, you're absolutely nuts. If I were you, I would take those $50,000. I would two, wait two months. I would buy a Porsche and I would just drive up and down Silicon Valley, like working four hours a week, you know? <laughs> I'm like, come on. But there's this weird perception gap we have, which is like, oh, we need to all be, you know, like we need to all be amazing to your point. It's totally fine to play like some, you know, pick up bas basketball or something uh, with your buddies and shoot the hoops and, you know, like make 50 freaking thousand dollars while you're doing. I know it's a when Pascal, like, why do you think how does someone de detox from that and mm. either actualize themselves, 
I know how I do it, but I know that it's custom tailored to everybody probably. I wonder if you have any insight on like how you can detox from kind of those external inputs that we don't even know. It's like white noise. We don't even know that's going on all the time to be able to kind of either confirm that, yes, this is what I want to do or two, man, he's right. Maybe just working with my five closest buddies on this thing we all care about is the way to live. You can't start a sentence with, I have my own way to do it, but I'm not telling you. <laughs> I need to hear. I, I want to hear your version of like, how do you detox? How do you like separate yourself from the craziness? Man, I go always go back. I call it reference points. I go back to these reference points in my, and I didn't even know they existed until I realized that they're usually associated with something very intense or traumatic or something. And the way that I felt post that and during are the things that I pay attention to. And, and I kind of say, what do I think about those? Some of them never want to do them again. Some of them, I'm like, that was extremely, like to a molecular level, very satisfying. And you find that that stuff stands the test of time. So for me personally, when I sit with myself and usually I'm going to the mountains and, and doing that, usually once a year I'm, I'm packing up for a few weeks and I'm climbing things and in the Alpine. And what I find is that I really enjoy certain things that kind of come together, common things, right? Doing something very, very difficult, almost to the point of like impossible, but with a team and mm -hmm. actually sharing some physical hardship as well. And so anything that's thematically around that, that's kind of where I base the core of like where I want to spend my time doing the things that I do. Um, and that's just one version of it. There's other things that I can kind of put in there, but that's how I do it. And when I do give that advice to folks, you know, they're like, well, I don't climb mountains. I'm like, well, whatever your version is of, kind of detoxing and then going back to those those things right and so the reason i ask is because i'm curious i w i do this better every year just because i feel like i got more reference points but i know for younger folks you know these 18 to 25 year old founders maybe not as many or at least they don't believe as many so this is why i'm curious if there's other things you think about I think you summarize this beautifully. I think that's exactly, you know, I would use different words. For me, it's, but it's the exact same principle. Yeah. It's really understanding like what makes you actually tick and what's important and um, what do you enjoy doing and what la gives you lasting um, memories. Mm -hmm. There's also an interesting, uh, for the, the listeners, uh, I, you know, I'm a little older, uh, so I'm like in my late 40s now. Um, there's two books I wish I would have read about 20 years ago. So one is um, a book uh, called 4,000 Weeks. And it's uh, the subtitle is something around like uh, time management for mortals. And the whole idea behind that book is to say um, the average lifespan is like somewhere around whatever it is, 80 years. You know, granted, we might live a little longer, but like not exponentially longer. Yeah. If you divide this by weeks, you get to 4,000 weeks. That is not a very large number. Like in any like any way stretch means, you know, of the imagination. So the question becomes like, what do you actually do with those weeks? So I think there's an interesting thing in there, which is like we're so obsessed of like micromanaging the moment, right? Like making sure we're not like wasting any time in the day that we forget, we forget the zoomed out perspective. Mm -hmm. There's a very famous saying, which is uh, days are long, years are short. That's right. Um, and yeah. it's just true, right? It's true. And I think that, again, like thinking about founders, like really thinking about like, what is it that actually matters? And like, how do I like maximize that? And then the second book I read, um, also highly recommend is called Die With Zero. It's a really weird book. And it basically the, the principle is something I heard throughout my whole life all the time, which is it is a stupid concept to die with money in the bank. 
because <laughs> you have like you can't do anything with it right it's like you're dead so the the idea is like how do you actually um, optimize your cash flow so to say that yeah. you kind of end up dying with zero but the author and he's a um, financial advisor uh, so very sound financial advisory uh, pieces in there but the point he's making and this is really important to understand is that your ability to enjoy money and your ability to make money unfortunately are inverse the younger you are the more you can actually spend money and do crazy shit and you know like going up on the mountains hanging out you know buying cool equipment like having real fun when you're 70 you're like do way less of that yeah the problem is when you're young you typically don't make all that much money so the idea is how do you actually maximize that curve and balance those curves out and that gets me to an interesting point which is maybe you shouldn't like spend all your time working your butt off when you're 25 but you should be rather in the mountains climbing which i'm also a climber so i'm 100 percent with you here yeah um and then you know when you get to like 50 like yeah spend some more time working you know so I think there's an interesting thing about, again, like figuring out like, what do you actually want in life? Like looking at life as a much more macro perspective than just the, I need to build a startup, it needs to be successful next week and I wanna be you know, on the headline of TechCrunch or something. Yeah, no, that's fair, man. And I, you know, the 4,000 weeks, it's, I have not read that book. And you're right, somehow that makes the perspective on that comes real true. Cause 4,000 yeah. is something you can get your hands around. And you're right. like, in my mind, when you said that, I go, is that it? <laughs> like that just didn't sound like very many weeks, yeah. you know? And so when you start thinking of it that way, that's really curious. So I'm, you know, probably one more thought in my brain on the founder side that I want to pick your brain a little more about what you guys are doing, especially it'd be radical. But like, uh, what do you, the one thing that I've kind of seen you talk about in the past is, you know, looking at, Hey, not just what's going on here, but the second and third order effects of decisions that are made. You know, I know you had something remote work that you were talking about, and you can kind of like span out the fan and really think about what those things are. I'm actually curious about what you also think, again, going back to that founder seat or going back to that employee number one seat. As How much do you think everybody should be paying attention to those orders of effect? And to your point, mm -hmm. does it, you know, in the early days, is it really just trench warfare and just kind of try to get to the next day and survive? Or do you find that Actually, if we spend a little more time doing that, even in the early days, you might actually find ourselves to find some unlocked gear that we can get into that we just didn't spend any. Because I, I find a lot of folks saying, I don't overthink it. Just keep hitting those yeah. targets and it'll just kind of work its way out. Yeah. I think that's a really good question. Um, for me, it ties into a question around uh, two pieces. One is figuring out what is your North Star. So understanding what you actually want to get to. Um, I find a few founders in their obsession with the pivot to kind of like be very lost in terms of where do we actually want to get to, you know, so they're just trying things out, it doesn't work, they pivot, like, you know, try something completely different. I, nothing wrong with that. But it's hard to see how you actually end up anywhere. If yeah if you don't know what directions you need to go. It's a bit like a, a bird on its migratory path to the south, right? They know where they need to go. They don't necessarily like determine exactly like which pathway they're flying, but you know, broadly speaking, where you want to end up. So as a founder, I think it's worth spending time figuring out where do you want to go and thinking that through, as in 
what do I, what is the vision of the future, the preferred future I hold, as in where do I actually want to be? What do I think, what is my assumption about the future and where, how do I fit into this picture? I think that's one. And then the second one is um, until you have product market fit, so until you have something where you know that it like really fits nicely with the customer and then it's all about fine tuning, execution and, you know, scale, et cetera. Um, I actually agree with you. You need to try things out. And if you have the capacity, the ability to try more things in a shorter period of time with less resources, you are superior in the Darwinistic world of, you know, business. That is a killer strength. Um, a friend of mine once called this the uh, the drunken walk of the entrepreneur, which I think as a I metaphor is a really is a really beautiful it's picture. It's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It's uh, so you're saying that the more you kind of have to be delicate about you kind of need to generally know that's my North Star, but being able to iterate in these things, especially at low cost, so to speak, is mm -hmm. actually very powerful to eventually get into that North Star right. because I think a lot of folks don't realize how hard the game is, man. It is, I think the world of being so connected to communication is equally beautiful and frustrating because it can create this little bit of a, of a film that anybody who tries to do yeah. this journey will always be successful because you kind of see so much of the inputs or the, at least the perceived input, uh, output of what that looks like. But it's actually often not the case, you know, and it's not to get people spooked about it, but generally speaking, it's, it's not the case to get into something right away and then immediately be, or it'll be successful even 10 years from now. A hundred percent. You know, I think the, the thing you need to understand is it's kind of weird because you look at your Instagram feed, you know, it's highly curated. You know that your buddies are not having fun 24 seven partying, drinking, you know, like being on a yacht, whatever, or, <laughs> or in my case, you know, like hanging upside down on this cliff on like one finger and like doing this super hard, like five foot 13 crux move. We know that's not the reality. We know yeah. that's a moment. When it comes to business, it's kind of funny because we look at business and we're like, we totally ignore the fact that there's like 99.999 whatever percent of stuff which is like terrible. It's hard. It's, you know, we don't talk about the companies which didn't make it. We only talk about classic survivorship bias, right? We only talk about the survivors. That's and right. I think it's important to understand that. And again, not to spook anyone, not to say you shouldn't do it. I think it's very well worth doing. But you need to know what you're getting into. And speaking of getting into, I'm curious, one of the things I'm fascinated with how you got to get to where you're at today, mm -hmm. I imagine also, like you said, dots, dots did not connect perfectly looking into there, but do you feel like where you're at now with Be Radical and where you guys are moving to just personally, Pascal, do you feel like that is a bit of like, yeah, that's definitely on path in my North Star. Like I, Cause you've had so many different things that you've done. I got to imagine, maybe not, maybe you were one of the rare breeds who were like born and by the time you were five, you're like, hey, I'm starting this company. I don't know what it's called yet. Maybe with Radical no. in it and I'm going to be helping a bunch no. of other people. Like, <laughs> How did you make your way? So kind of two parts. Yeah. Where you're at, does it feel right? And right. then two, did you, I mean, how do you really think that happened? Because I don't know that anybody would have known what you do is even a real job. You know what I mean? Yeah, me neither. I don't, I, to this day, I don't understand that people actually give me money to doing this before, but uh <laughs> maybe cut that out of the out of the podcast um no joking aside um no absolutely so i had no idea where i want to go as a as a, as a child I, I, even as a like teenager or young person uh to the point that uh so i grew up in germany i i did the equivalent of high school and then went to university 
And in Germany, the, the university system is a little different because you have to pick your major when you enter your university. So it's not like you go in there, you explore, and then they kind of figure out what you want to do, which I think is actually the better way. Yeah. Um, because, you know, who knows what you want to do when you're like 18 or something. Um, but I chose to study economics not because I thought that like, this is amazing and I'm really into economics. I thought it was like the only reason I chose it was because I had no idea what I want to do. And I was like, well, this might be a universally good skill to have, I guess. Maybe better than like ancient history or something, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So clearly I had no clue where that journey will take me. The thing I do knew very early on is um, I'm insatiable curious um, and I love putting myself into situations where I'm kind of quote unquote the dumbest person in the room because it allows me to learn most. And I like technology. So bringing those things together really made it like fit much better because it mm -hmm. became to this point where we're like, okay, great. So like, I know I want to do something in tech. Um, I know I want to like just learn and then just like go with the flow and then I pick opportunities where I felt, yeah, I don't know how to do that. That sounds awesome. Let me try it, right? I, I can learn with that. Um, so I, I think that's where really my journey started and, and continues to lead me uh, to where I'm today. And to your question is like, how do I feel about where I'm at today? Yeah. Um, so for many reasons, it feels really, really good. A couple of reasons. One is I work for myself. Um, so I don't have to anyone to report to, which, you know, is personally for me is like a complete blessing and like probably the biggest, uh, the biggest luxury one person can, one single person can have. Mm -hmm. So there's number one. Um, number two is it allows me to do stuff like I can go climbing. So tomorrow I'll take a day off and go climbing because the weather is great. Um, right. So uh, that's that. an insane luxury. Um, and I do work, which I really generally find incredibly interesting because I learn every single day. We work with these clients who are from all over the world, all different industries. I know nothing about their businesses. So I learn as much from them. I would argue I learn probably even more from them than they learn from me. Um, so for me, it's just really fascinating. Um, so I'm in a good spot. Will this mean that like 10 years from now, if we were to repeat this conversation, I'll be still with Be Radical and doing this? I have no idea. I yeah. literally don't. This is the, I think that's the humbling and great part to kind of hear. I'm kind of glad you said that. I mean, that, I think for so many folks, it's um, the idea that something else could come along is something you should, it's okay to like, let that exist, right? And then mm -hmm. allow yourself to change your mind. Whereas I think for a lot of folks, there's anxiety that it gets built. I can even see it in these, whether it's founders or folks who are working in corporate or whoever's asking for a piece of advice on what to do next, you know, you always tell them, or at least I do always say, hey, look, leave space for things to change. What often happens is that that raft comes by. And if it looks good, jump in it. The beauty of that is you can decide to get off later if you want, or it might be the best ride you've ever got. But a lot of folks don't give enough space to do that. So it's really cool to hear someone who's had the experience you've had and still be saying that. Yeah, and I think you bring up something really important. I love the I love your image of the raft. Um, you know, I always tell people, uh, and this goes back to actually... Um, uh, the four-hour work week, you know, like yeah. uh, whole like idea, but this notion around really assessing what is the actual risk you're taking, because I think people are over concerned. Not all. Some people are like over concerned with the risk. 
the risk side, right? They're like, oh my God, if I do this, you know, like it might not work out and then like it's terrible. And then in the head, they've got this movie playing out, which is, you know, I jump on this new opportunity, this new job, it doesn't work out. I get unemployed. I lose my house. My wife will lose me. Like I will live on the street. You know, I will die like poor on the street. Um, The reality, of course, is that typically doesn't happen. Um, And as a framing, uh, you know, I really try to like look at the world as in, what is the actual risk here and what is the um uh, what is the probability of that risk and if the probability of the risk isn't well there's a 50 50 chance that you die or you know like you like literally lose everything or whatever it is um i'd rather take the risk than mm-hmm. be complacent and stay in something which might not feel all that great no i i couldn't have reset that better on the ways that you think about that i think that folks will say well as you get older that changes mm-hmm. well i don't maybe it does but i also think about well maybe maybe if you've done that enough in your earlier parts of your life maybe by the time you are older you are stabilized in the things you enjoy you know and hopefully yeah. that's where you're at instead of you'll find folks that even uh, would give the advice quite opposite you know and say once you find something just hold on to it for dear life and i've always found that to be very discouraging right like as a into your point the risk actually isn't as big as one would think um the one thing that i think about with what you guys are working on and be radical and kind of leads i think into just taking on risk and what that looks like how do do you find first of all i'm curious like do you find that companies now are more open to talking to thought leadership groups like you all and about helping folks kind of restructure even how they think about things than they had been in the past i think that's definitely true yeah Um, And I think it's true for a couple of reasons. I think one is um, the sinking feeling which uh, companies realize, and this goes back to a quote from Bill Joy, who was the CTO of Sun Microsystems, this like incredible computer company way back when. He said, uh, most of the smartest people don't work for you. And it's a universal truth, regardless who you are. I mean, you can be Facebook or Google or something. And, you know, Google employs God knows how many people. I have no idea, like 100,000 people or something. There's at least 100,000 people working at Facebook who are like super, super smart, who don't work for you, right? So understanding that makes you more humble and more open to saying, okay, so who who could I ask for like just perspective? I think that's number one. Second is that we finally start to understand that um, if we're in a myopic world where we talk to people who look like us, think like us, speak like us, have the same shared experiences, uh, we're missing out on a ton. Right. And, you know, like every Harvard Business Review has at least one article about diversity and like why that is important, et cetera, et cetera. So people start to do this more. Um, I think we're still not going the full, like full nine yards. Um, They still talk to people like me, like luckily your uh, listener can't see me, but I'm your classic white dude, like hairless white dude. Right. So um, in many ways, like they still speak to someone who looks a lot like them. Uh, I would rather prefer them to like, yeah, speak to me. That's fine. But like also speak to like someone who is like 17 year old, you know, black teenager from, you know, the Bronx um, to understand like what's actually happening in the world. But we're getting better at it. Well, and I can see that you guys are. I mean, just even watching and seeing some of the things that you guys have put out there. How do you you get folks that come to you guys and say, hey, Pascal, we need some help. You know, where do you find is most of that help? They're at least asking for. They might go a different direction. Where, where, what do you find is usually the the two big problems that they usually come to y'all with and say, "Can you help me with this?" or "Help me how to think about it." 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, probably it helps to just very briefly take one step back and say the organizations, the companies we work with, they tend to be larger, anything from privately held to publicly traded companies, um, often multinational. So we're thinking big company. Yep. And what they tend to want is an outside perspective on where someone else might think the future will go. Um, so to add to their perspective of here's what we think our future is. We often talk about this this belief of like the future you hold, that is the official future. This is the future you believe in. Uh, there is a million other futures out there and it helps to have people externally basically point that out and say, listen, like you haven't seen this here, you haven't seen that here. It could play out in the following way and could like be an opportunity or a threat to you. Um, so that's the starting point. I think the other thing is I believe companies increasingly understand that for better or worse, they have these like this internal um, autoimmune system, which reject, it protects you from the outside world, like your immune system. But every once in a while, it turns into an autoimmune disease where it starts attacking these internal ideas and it helps. This is the classic role of a consultant, right? It helps to have someone who's external to sit there and say, you know, you should really think about this. Mm -hmm. um, and then the particular stance we are taking is because we designed the company to be small by definition, um, it allows us to take a position we like to call the jester's uh, position, which is like the jester in the medieval court. The jester in the medieval court was the only one who could tell the king the truth because the jester didn't have a self-interest. I mean, the jester didn't have like, you know, like sheep to look after or, or you know, land, like land to, to acquire or wars to win. And... We have the similar situation because we are so small and so tiny. Uh, we can go to these clients who are typically very big companies and say, you know, like you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't actually even hire us. We can't help you with this, um, which is a weird thing to do. It's the best. And, I mean, it's so anti-capitalist. Yeah. But yeah. Right. But they never hear it. Right. They literally never hear it. And because I can't help. I can't say, oh, you should totally like invest into whatever, like the blockchain, right? And here's a $50 million project you should buy from us. Yeah. I sit there and I'm like, eh, you know, you shouldn't do that. And by the <laughs> way, you shouldn't really not like even bother like hiring us. And it puts us in a really interesting position. Um, and I greatly enjoy that. It's an incredible position. Who do you find, at least personality-wise of a company, um, best fits with y'all? You know, what does that look like? And it sounds like you guys are across industry. So my guess yeah. it's more personality driven or problem driven. It is. Yes. And it comes down to uh, a little bit more people who are like us, right? Like you find these people inside of corp corporations, companies who are a little bit more the, uh, they have a little bit of a heretical view. They have a bit of like a, a rebel in them, like a, you know, like a striding, striving for like, yeah, let me change things. Let me like rattle the cage a little bit. Let me like push things a little harder. Yeah. Um, and the best companies we find, at least the best companies we work with, I should say, um, you have this in their top leadership. You know, it might be the CEO who says, you know, like, yeah, we need to do things differently. I really want to do things differently. Um, and those companies are super fun to work with, for us at least. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. Who do you find at the, I imagine you guys are working with a lot of the executive level and executive teams, but I'm curious where you've seen success in companies being able to not only think about their future, but do it effectively and then action on it in some way, even if it's just small action at the beginning to kind of get to where they're going. Where do you find that that needs to kind of be stewarded, so to speak, yeah. in the organization? Like, who is it the CEO all the time? And if it's yeah. not, how else does that work? Does it have to be everybody on the exec team? 
Because some folks don't think that way. So I don't know why, but you know, there's some folks who are just not engineered that way, but they're sure as heck great at operating or CFO, whatever. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, for us, it comes back to, um, I somewhat humorously quote a German uh, saying, which really awfully translates into English. It's really not a good way to put this into English, but the German saying is the fish stink from Kopf. It translates into uh, the fish rots from the head, which I don't even know if that's biologically true. <laughs> I have no idea. But it's very um, clear what you're saying. Yes. But the thing is, uh, um, we have, when we talk to companies, we, we tend to spend time with their top leadership to understand if it doesn't, top leadership leadership doesn't need to be the person who's like executing on it. Of course not. But if the CEO basically like sees this endeavor as a, a pet tiger thing, you know, um, or... Uh, you know, like there's this term innovation theater or whatever, you know, like whatever is happening. I think you're on lost ground. Like we as a company are on lost ground and we don't work with a client, but we also go to our clients. I mean, the amount of times I have told a, a vice president in a company saying like, you know what, like having talked to your company and your leadership, et cetera. I mean, by all means, be my guest and like put your nose to the grindstone and like, you know, try to grind through it. But I would probably choose a different company. Because you just can't do the thing, you know, because the backing isn't there. Yeah, I mean, you're you're dead on arrival and then you end up just, you know, dying right. tired, so to speak, right. right? And I think that... That's exactly right. How do you find... What does that person look like in your mind, Pascal? Like the person, maybe the head, the head of the fish mm-hmm. or the group of people at the head of the fish. What does that personality look like? Because I imagine it's probably equal balance, not overly dreamy, no execution involved, and at the same right. time, not super execution forward and stuck. Yeah, and I think, I mean, quite frankly, you can be, uh, you can be a quote unquote a bean counter and do this, and yeah. you can be like a lofty dreamer and do this. It's mostly around like who are the people you surround yourself with, like talking about team, right? This goes back also to startups, right? Like you want to have teams which are actually complementing each other. Yeah. Um, but I do think that the the commonality of these people is that they're dissatisfied with the status quo. They're eternally dissatisfied with the status quo. Hmm. And there's a beautiful thing, again, like bringing this probably back to like more of a startup community, right? There's a beautiful thing is uh, the best starting point for a startup founder. When, you know, when I talk to people and just want to assess out like, are you really a startup founder or you're just thinking you, or you want to be a startup founder? Is, you know, like the people who are in line at a Starbucks or, you know, take any coffee chain, national coffee chain or local coffee chain, of your choice. Uh, no endorsement for Starbucks. <laughs> That's right. Um, but, uh, you know, like you're in your coffee shop and you're in line and the best entrepreneurs are the ones who are like telling you at least three times, man, like we should run that cash register better. Why is the cash register not like connected to the internet? Why is the barista doing this? Man, we could like totally solve money. Like we could do this here. We could do this. We could like rebrand the store. You know, those are the entrepreneurs. They can't stop thinking about this shit, right? Even if it's not their business. Yeah, that's right. And the CEOs are the same. Like the best CEOs or the best leadership folks, like they run around and they're like always like, man, we could do this better or, you know, like this better. Or, you know, they walk over the shock, uh, the, the factory floor and talk to the foreman and they're like, they have no clue what they're actually doing, right? But they're like, listen, like, I, I think I saw you like moving around here like this way. Like, can we do this better? Is there a better way? You know, so looking for like, what is the status quo and being like just dissatisfied with the status quo because there's always something you can do better. 
Oh man, it's it's so on par though. You're right. I mean, it gives me actually. Sometimes I think you could see those type of. Sometimes I think I'm crazy for thinking about this, but I think it goes to like you're right. People are naturally curious, and people yeah. are naturally just want to like. But say it can be better. Why allow it to continue to be that way? Mm-hmm. Um, so you're saying those kind of folks that you get to interact with, you kind of probably look at it from your perspective and say, okay, it looks like they got a chance, right, to be able to make this actually work because there's actually somebody who believes in it at their core. That's exactly right. Yeah, and you'd be surprised. I think that the thing for me is is very easily to get dismayed about humanity. You know, like you see these people like in big corporations, in government, in anywhere, and you're like, ah, oh, you're all idiots, you're stupid, like you can't, <laughs> yeah, like you really don't care, etc. What I find is that the vast amount of people in some way, shape or form actually cares. Um, they actually want to do like things better. They want to make things better. And uh, we just need to create the conditions for them. We sometimes need to bit, light a bit of a fire underneath them. We need to remove a barriers for them. But... I, I do really do think that um, the vast amount of people want to make things better in one way or the other. Yeah, no, you're. Uh, it's easy now, right, to think about the world in a way that um, what I have to remind myself of often. I actually said this to my wife the other day, uh, and to some friends we were having some dinner with, and I think we all naturally got on the topic of the dismay that's going on in the world. You name it, everything from Ukraine to the stock market, whatever. And you start to go down the path of just talking about how jacked up everything is. And I go, but do you ever, one question that kept going through my mind, they were kind of all chatting everybody. And, and I just asked the question, I was like, but do you realize like we never, do we all feel like we don't hang around those kind of people though? Like everybody I know personally doesn't suck. And mm-hmm. so I'm just curious if this is a narrative that we want to believe somehow, like we're almost like want to sabotage or give ourselves an excuse for not doing something well or pursuing the dream or doing whatever, because it's just easier to succumb to that. I think it's true. I think there's also a piece to that, which is um, your brain is naturally drawn to fight or flight, right? This is the amygdala, the oldest part of your brain, the part of your brain which ensured your survival for millennia, like for hundreds of thousands of years. So we're drawn to this. And then, you know, unfortunately we have created, and this is my biggest pet peeve, like we have created a world around us which perpetuates this. Like, take any newspaper, look at the front page of the newspaper, I guarantee you there's not a single positive news in there. Unless maybe the local sports team wins. (laughs) But everything else is like, you know, like, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. And then make no mistake, I I look at stuff like climate change or something, and I I freak out, right? It's terrible. No question. But at the same time, how, how do you envision a better world if you never talk about it? You can't create something you don't talk about. Yep. And I think that's the, for me, that's the biggest problem we have at the moment. It's like we seem to be bashing, we've, we feed the amygdala because it's the easiest, cheapest way. Yeah. No, it's right, man. It, it takes me back to, you know, in addition to loving mountains and being around that, like driving cars and going fast with them is another thing that I like. And I remember in the early days of learning how to drive around a track or mm-hmm. do those things, it was a simple lesson. I remember early on, one of the first things that, uh, that you were you were told was whatever you do don't ever look at anything you don't want to crash into right and it sounds so weird right you're like that's it and it's amazing what the body will prevent you from doing if you're not looking at that Mm -hmm. you know that corner that's got that huge barrier weirdly enough everything moves in concert naturally to avoid it it just it works that way and only drive where you want to go so to your point you know there is we don't spend enough time looking for it so selfishly i want to ask a question that 
Um, and I know we're coming up on some time here and I want to be able to kind of pick your brain about the things that you're excited about with Be Radical and everything else. But kind of the last thought I have going through my mind just selfishly is, do you right now you're right the chaos and the pain and everything maybe it always has but it seems more so now sells way better so everybody's diving double into it do you think as you're thinking future the thing i spent a lot of time with thinking 5 10 20 years from now is that is it possible and i this is what i want to be a part of is building something that's not only a force of good but really just um highlights and shows the actually good in humanity that exists that i feel like i interact with every day that we don't talk about do you feel like in the end, just as you think about the future, like that has a place to win? I do think so. Absolutely. Because I look at, um, particularly if you turn this into human story, I mean, look at a teenager or, you know, like a, a teen um, and look at what they put, you know, back in the day, we put posters into our rooms. I have no idea if we're still doing that. Um, I don't think so, but I know what you mean. Presumably, they put this on their phones. They're like, I don't have kids, so I'm like, I'm completely out of this loop. But you get the picture. Yeah. I mean, look at what they're like. What is it they're putting on the on the on their like walls? It's not typically. It's not a picture of like doomsday. You know, like world goes to crap. You know, like whatever. Fire burning. Yeah. Yeah. What they put on a wall is, you know, an athlete or an actor, or whatever it is, and something they aspire towards, like something which they see as a positive force. Yeah. Um, I do believe that this is that this is how we're wired. Like we love the hero story, and I think the there is a huge opportunity for us to tell more of those stories and get create these role models for people, which are also this is I think one of the challenges we have at the moment as well, which is because we are so connected, because there's so, so much competition for like airtime we tend to go to the pinnacle, right? Like you look at Elon Musk, and if you want to be an entrepreneur, you're either like Elon or you're nothing. And I think that's a huge issue because yes, there is a couple of people who say, I want to be Elon. I believe I can be Elon. I'll do it. There's a vast amount of people who say, yeah, Elon is awesome and I admire him, but I will never be Elon. And thus, I don't even try. Mm -hmm. And I want to have those stories where it's like, you know, same goes with like athletes, right? Like I can't be an Olympic athlete, but I can be, you know, like as good or I can aspire to be the local athlete I have in my school or whatever, right? So I think there's a there's an interesting piece in there, which is like we need to tell more of those um, like local stories, like about maybe like nearly 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I traveled through Germany and I gave this like inspirational, aspirational talk on entrepreneurship to university students. Mm -hmm. And I always ask them a couple things. I First of all, I asked them, who here is or considers themselves an entrepreneur? And you get like whatever, like, you know, 15, 20% of like people like raise their hands. And when I asked them then, why, why is it you see yourself as an entrepreneur? They all told me one story, which is, oh, you know, like my dad is an entrepreneur, my uncle is an entrepreneur, like this friend of the family is an entrepreneur. They had someone in their close circle they could look up to and say, I want this. Like I see Uncle Ted, like, you know, running his little like bagel shop. I love this. This is super cool. He's got the best lifestyle. I want to have that. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to foster that. I, I believe that if we point this out to more people, then we will see more of the good in the world. Well, I couldn't agree more, my friend. What I, 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 at least reconfirms the way I like to look at the world too. So I think that right now it's not loud enough, but I think at some point people are going to take that mass detox 
And when they hopefully that good resonates, right? I used to love opening up the newspaper, newspaper and like reading the human interest piece, the one that like I don't even know exists anymore. Right. But it was Susan in the community who somehow did X, and now it's better for it. And most of us probably just passed by. Those were my favorite stories, right? Because I will probably never meet some of the people that we all talk about. Maybe, maybe we will, right? But at the end of the day, you know Susan in the community. And for some reason, that we think that that is somehow less important or less impactful. But it isn't. It gives the next Elon Musk of the world enough of a boost and confidence to go do what they're going to go do. So that's great. Um, well, man, I, got, I could talk to you for hours and hours, Pascal. But tell me, just as we're kind of closing out, like one, just what are the things you're most excited about with Be Radical? You know, what you guys either have in the hopper or just kind of what you're working on and just want to see what you guys got forward vision. Yeah, totally. So uh, we became pretty obsessed with uh, debunking this whole disruption thing. You know, like everybody loves to talk about disruption. There's oh, not yeah, a newspaper yeah. headline, right? You see it like everywhere. All the time. All the time. And... Um, you know, we joke about this. Uh, disruption for us has become uh, tofu. Uh, tofu, of course, like this like vegetarian dish, right? It's uh, soy-based, curd. Uh, I'm a vegetarian, so I eat a lot of that stuff. And uh, tofu is fascinating to me because tofu tastes like absolutely nothing. And then you put sauce on it, it tastes like the sauce, right? And disruption is the same thing. It just means nothing anymore. And you put it in some weird context and it becomes whatever the context should be. Yeah. So we spent a bunch of time, like literally now f nearly four years on figuring out a model to really think rethink disruption and then doing what you're just currently doing which is we spoke to more than 250 people who are really good at doing this and asked them a seemingly innocent question we said don't tell us this, the theory don't tell us you know i don't care the strategy the tactics what i want to know is what the heck are you actually doing to make this work right like what is it you do on a day-to-day -day basis and yeah so like that we then basically pulled out the insights and the essence and uh, are in the process of putting this into a book etc but um the headline by the way of how i think people should think about disruption and this is probably interesting for you know everyone listening to this is the important piece about disruption is when you look at any of the disruption stories that the underlying consumer need the thing like uh, Clayton Christensen who's a very famous uh, you know author uh, once called this the jobs to be done the underlying thing people want to do actually doesn't change all that much they're very robust over really long periods of time right so horses and buggies got displaced by cars and cars will get displaced by robo cars whatever the the need you have which is I want to go from A to B in A the B. least amount of time right like most comfort least cost that has never changed over hundreds of years. And I think it's important to understand that because it allows you to look at a market at a at a at what we call a state. Like the market is in a particular state. It's a particular way to get it like, you know, like to fulfill that customer need. And the question you can ask yourself, and it's a really powerful question for an entrepreneur is, how can I make that better? How can I fulfill this need better? Because when you do, the market flips and it turns from like one state to the next. You go from... VHS video cassettes in a store at Blockbuster to getting your DVDs shipped to your house to getting the stuff streamed to your television. Always the same need. It's always like, oh, I want to have home entertainment. You know, I want to watch a movie in, like on my sofa. Um, so I think that's an important an important thing. Again, like we're super excited about this. We roll this out with our clients. A lot of our clients applying these models now. Um, so it's it's a pretty fun journey. It's so cool. I mean, you're it's. 
the way you said it is very like you could, I could let me take this version. You could say, well, just go find some business and just make it better. It didn't sound that interesting because you're just like, well, I just yeah. no top MBA or somebody who's an entrepreneur thinks that that's fascinating at all. But when you say it in the currents of everything in our world has an undercurrent that is the same, it is the same gravitational pull to the needs and things that we want to be doing. Just make that stuff better, more accessible, more efficient, more faster, right? That's that's the the essence of entrepreneurship, which is solving problems people need solved. Um, that's great. I dig it, man. So, do y'all find like that's kind of the way that you guys are? What's the name of the book, or is that secret right now that's coming out? <laughs> it's not secret. No, not at okay. all. <laughs> um, so it has a working title. So I have no idea. Like once it gets into the publishing process, they typically rip it apart. Say you are like so stupid to come up with this title. You're like you're not worthy our time. Let us like come up with a better title for you, right? And then they call your yeah. book like stick or you know whatever like <laughs> bold or yeah. yeah whatever, right? Uh, so we're currently calling this uh, practical futurism because that's what it is. It's about figuring out what the future actually looks like, but in a practical way. Oh, um, and then we have like the, the subtitle is Decode, Disrupt, and Transform because that's yeah. what it is. It's like decoding what's happening in the world, then disrupting like the, the way you're thinking about it and then transforming, you know, whatever business you're currently in or you want to create uh, into this new world. But again, publishers will take it. They will turn it into like God knows what, like, you know, the, the little pink flying elephant <laughs> stories from entrepreneurship or whatever. I don't know. We'll figure that out. Well, when it comes out, when is it coming out there, Pascal? Realistically, end of the year. I mean, right. that's the other thing you learn. Publishing industry is super slow. Yeah. Crazy well, maybe that's slow. something we need to go figure out then. Maybe yeah. that is. Another I want to, I want to read disrupted. and get educated. Yeah, no, that's right. Totally. Pascal, man, thank you so much for your time. What? Well, how can people find you, keep up with you? What are the things that, you know, if we wanted to keep in tune with what you're working totally. on, what you and the team are? Totally. So, uh, I'm very easy to find. Uh, there apparently is only one other, like one other guy on the internet who's got the same name as I, Pascal Finette. Uh, so if you just Google me, you'll literally find me because that other person also doesn't have an internet presence. So I own my Google search results. I'm like dominating my Google search results, which is awesome. It's great. Um, for better or worse. Um, so yeah, so just Google me. You'll find tons of stuff. We've got uh, you know a couple of websites up, uh, newsletters you can subscribe to, but uh, just Google it. It's easy. That's great. Well, brother, thank you so much for being on the show today. Absolutely appreciate your insights. And again, could have done this for hours. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was super fun. Thank you. Well, y'all, thank y'all for listening. This is the Professionally Offensive Podcast. You can catch us on all platforms. JC out.